Pain makes people very uncomfortable. Actually being in a space where you can be in pain is quite freeing. Cheerio, everybody. I'm Tony. And I'm Kiana. And you're listening to Good Pain. Um, Kiara, why am I doing an offensively bad English accent? Tony, because we went across the pond today. Yes, we did. And we uh, are so excited because we met the wonderful doctor, excuse me, doctor, Emma Shepard. Yes, Emma teaches at Coventry University, which is, in fact, in the UK. That checks out. I I Googled it. Yep. And she is a critical disability studies sociologist. She researches chronic pain, time, emotion, gender, and sexuality. Yes. And we we talk about this in the interview, but uh, she has an incredible YouTube lecture uh, on YouTube, ironically, which is where most (laughs) YouTube lectures exist, uh, called Pain as an Emotional Experience. Obviously, you should check it out. And we have uh, a story about how we even came across this little lecture. Yes, thank you. We need to give credit where credit is due. Thank you very much. Not you, Tony. You know, I read that wrong and Mm -hmm. I apologize. Julia, listeners, you may remember, was one of our earlier guests and she suffers from fibromyalgia and started visiting a dom Mm -hmm. to great success. And she was the one who pointed us towards Emma Shepard. She said that that YouTube lecture really profoundly changed her life and she felt seen and heard as a sufferer of chronic pain for the very first time, really, in some ways. Right, right. And, And so not only is Julia a wonderful, wonderful person, but she has also directed us and introduced us to yet another Wonderful, wonderful person. She maybe should be on payroll. She may, mm, we're, no, Internal we're, discussion. Yeah, that's, we've, we're going to have to talk to HR Too far? about that. Okay. Yeah. Mainly because I'm not getting paid yet. All right. Well, we'll but, sort it yeah, out. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, without further ado, the wonderful Dr. Emma Shepard. I can't wait. Oh, we've gone legitimate today. Yeah, we have. We've gone legitimate today. Uh, we are speaking with Dr. Emma Shepard. So yeah, Emma, welcome. It's so We're so glad to have you here. Hi, thank you. Shall we start yeah. at the very beginning? Yeah, let's start at the very beginning. Sorry, we'll probably have to cut that. Um, yeah. So, yeah how how did you um, how did you become a researcher? Obviously, I, I went to school and studied, but how did you become a researcher? And how did you become interested in this in this topic? Um, I mean, yeah, I, I went to school and studied is kind of the uh, yeah. the, the default version. Um, so. I have chronic pain myself. I have fibromyalgia, um, which I developed while I was um, doing my undergrad still. Um, and I was started doing, decided to do a master's because um, I wasn't sure what the hell I wanted to do with my life. Um, acquiring disability had kind of thrown some of my plans into a bit of disarray. Um, and also I graduated from my undergrad into the middle of a depression and went, hey, mm. getting a job's tough. Let's do further yeah, studies. Um, yeah. But and also it's worth noting by comparison, um, further st- postgraduate study in the UK is relatively cheap compared to oh, a lot of the US, okay. Okay. Uh, certainly in terms of the amounts that costs. Um, mm. So it didn't seem like so much of a I was already in a fair amount of student debt. Hey, what's another five grand <laughs> kind of thing? Correct. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so I started doing a master's in gender and society, uh, gender studies, essentially, and was finding that, that there wasn't anything on disability. It wasn't something that I was studying. It was very occasionally mentioned um, in, in at the odd part of a lecture. 
but it wasn't really something I studied. So I, I was interested in the kind of intersections around gender, sexuality and acquired disability and identity. That, that kind of bit about, so my kind of sociological interests can be broadly defined as that intersection between how does society make us people and how does people make us society? Mm-hmm. Like that, that, that point. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're getting kind of, if you want to use the, uh, the fancy terms, I, I talk about social construction, essentially yeah. social construction of selfhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I did a, for my master's dissertation, um, I did a piece of research that was looking at acquired disability in adulthood, um, and for LGTB people. So basically what, do, what does it mean to, to kind of rethink your sexuality mm-hmm. as you become physically disabled? Um, and kink got brought up, um, mm-hmm. wholly unexpectedly. And I went, well, this is fascinating because it got <laughs> brought up more than once. It wasn't like a, it was that thing of I interviewed three people. I did these very in-depth, um, interviews and it got brought up by two of my participants completely unprompted. And I went, well, this is kind of fascinating and weird. Um, let's prod it and see what, where I'm going with like, what, what's going yeah. on here? Couldn't find anything, uh, written on it. Was really struggling with academic work. Was finding a bit of so a few blog posts. I mean, this was 2011, 12. So a few blog posts, a few, um, basically online writing, but nothing that I could, could label as an academic study. Yeah. So basically I went, well, that sounds like a PhD to me. <laughs> um, yes. because the process here is basically, um, for, for a lot of the time you identify a topic and then you wander off and see if you can po- persuade someone to let you study it for a while. Um, the other side of that is, um, the slightly stranger story, which was when I was doing this masters, I was working, um, in a sex shop. Um, I sold sex toys for a living, um, because, Hey, we need to pay the bill somehow. And oh, sex yes. toys are a perfectly reasonable way of doing it. Mm-hmm. It was a really nice shop to work for. Um, I am still in touch with some of my colleagues 10 years later. Um, and it was something that we got asked about regularly as well by, um, by customers, by kind of community members that we were, um, we were working with it was intersections around disability and sex and kink. Interesting. And so it was that idea that I knew there was something there that was not being talked about. So originally I wanted to start just on a broader study around, um, disability and kink and disability and BDSM. Um, but it ended up becoming about chronic pain. Uh, which leads me to just ask you <laughs> bluntly, if you, what would your definition sort of of that be, of chronic pain be? So I use a bit of a mashup of definitions. Medically speaking, the definition is chronic pain that lasts for about three months or more. Um, that's the, from what's called something called the ICD. 11, which is the International Classification of Diseases from the World Health Organization. It's a super fun document. Do not recommend. Um, Read it cover to cover. Yeah. And that's what's used in the UK as a result, um, as the definition. Um, as somebody who has lived with chronic pain for 13, 14 years now, that kind of feels inadequate. Rather than thinking about um, chronic pain, thinking in terms of chronic illness, um, which is Chronic pain that therefore for me has no expectation of cease, of ending anytime soon. Because I imagine three months 
is very different than a decade in terms yeah. of how it shapes you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And essentially, that's kind of one of the, the with my research, that's one of the things that I essentially am arguing is that three months is a perfectly reasonable amount of time when in a medical understanding of pain. Mm-hmm. But the medical understanding of pain is is perfectly good for medicine, but it's not a social understanding of pain. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it yeah. doesn't have quite the same idea around that lived experience and what it mm-hmm. what it means to be a person living with pain. Right. It's an um, abstraction. It's not, it's, not, it's not a very concrete, full-encompassing idea. So medicine tends to think of pain as either acute, which is the short-term broken arm, twisted ankle kind of pain, um, and then chronic pain is the stuff that keeps going. It's not very well understood. Chronic pain can come from a lot and a lot of different reasons. Some people know why they have chronic pain. Some people don't. Um, for example, with my own fibromyalgia, um, it's not understood why fibromyalgia exists. Like there's no, um, there's no cause and no treatment. There's you know, management, but there's not a cure. There's nothing that can be done to stop it. Yeah. It just is. So what I'm interested in is the kind of broader understandings of what does it mean to be chronically ill, chronically pained over what over the over a lifetime over years and years of living with this and what does it mean to be that person um and how does that relate to our understanding socially of what it means to be a person yeah how can able-bodied people we may not be able to fully you know it's sort of like uh what you said about the medical definition of chronic pain this is sort of an abstract idea you know, we kind of get it intellectually in a way, but we don't really understand it deeply and fully. How can able-bodied people sort of be more empathetic and understanding toward those with chronic pain or, 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 or even disability as a whole? Yeah, I mean, it's that not understanding is, is a very common thing for disabled folk broadly. Yeah, and we can we can think about the ways in which it's it's tied to a lack of representation, a lack of knowledge, um, and a broader social uh, understanding of disability is bad. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's something that we don't want to be. That's a kind of oversimplification of of what's going on. Um, but essentially, it, it, that's the standpoint I come from within my research, within my own understanding of disability, is that socially speaking we don't want to be disabled. So disabled people get treated with pity, but also sometimes with a lot of discomfort and fear. Other writers um, have basically, uh, and it's something I think I really agree with, is this argument that in in acknowledging disability, we become reminded of our own capacity to become disabled. Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's a really discomforting thing. Yeah, there's the discomfort. Pain, yeah, pain is is one of is works a lot like that. Um, and it was actually one, something one of my participants said: pain is like a bodily fluid, and people are afraid you're going to piss all over them. Um, <laughs> in that, it's going to catch, it's going to get dirty. It's, yeah. it's you know. So in terms of like how able or non-disabled people can approach it, for myself, I think there's a lot of use in trying to remember yourself that pain is every day for us so chronically pain people tend to hide their pain um, because it's quite stigmatized because because it, we know it makes people uncomfortable um, but also because frankly expressing pain all the time is kind of boring you know that you're in pain 
in the same way that I know that I've got glasses on. It's just it's where my body is. It's how I move through the world. So I don't necessarily talk about it all the time. One of the things that I think is is really useful um, around for non-disabled people is remembering that just because we're not talking about it doesn't mean it stopped. Um, and quite often, it, if that means that we are expressing that pain, um, if we're talking about it, if we're having a having a whinge, um, or you know, crying, or showing other signs of discomfort, that is because it's it's reached a point where we can no longer ignore it ourselves. Yes, so it's perhaps it's, not the ableism version, which is like, oh, I don't feel well now. Yeah, it's the <laughs> I feel worse than I normally do. Um, yes. But also trying to work through that discomfort, trying to be okay with it. I can't remember where I first heard the phrase holding space, but holding space for somebody else to be in pain is a really useful thing um, of of just accepting it. Not trying to fix it? Yeah, not trying to fix it. Not trying to tell them to not talk about it. Just let them be in pain. Uh, it sounds like a really kind of simple and straightforward thing, and it kind of is, but also it, it's we're so um, socially conditioned to not do that, that right. it actually does require a bit of conscious effort on our own parts, uh, to the point where I have to do remember to do that as someone in chronic pain. <laughs> like, oh, it's not yeah. something that I, I'm good at doing. You have this phrase, I forget, Emma, if it was, I, I'm sure it wasn't first introduced in that in that YouTube lecture that we referenced, but that's where I first heard it, um, that chronic pain is reliably unreliable. And I wonder if you could speak a little more to that. And did you come up with that? Is that something like, as you were thinking about chronic pain and your research that, that you found that phrase? Um, yeah, I, I came up with it in the sense of it, it was something that occurred to me. Chronic pain and chronic fatigue quite often run hand in hand. Uh, pain is exhausting. Um, and people who have particularly chronic pain that 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 is medically not explained quite often have chronic fatigue as well. Um, so sometimes it's sometimes it's hard to distinguish between the two. Um, they're they're quite tangled together. You know you're going to be in pain, but you can't always predict how much pain. You know you're going to be tired, you can't predict how tired. I know, for example, that a two-hour lecture that I'm going to do is going to leave me exhausted. I can't predict how exhausted and for how long I'm going to be exhausted. I might just need like 10 minutes, sit down in a bit of quiet room and a cup of tea and I'll be absolutely fine. It might be that actually I'm going to need to take a, you know, the rest of the day mm-hmm. um, to, to really recover. For other people, they may not be able to do that at all. It's predictably unpredictable. You don't know. You have to just kind of take a guess and go, oh, well, I've done similar things before and it's taken me so much time to recover, so I'm mm-hmm. going to allow so, we'll see. Yeah. so much time to recover and it might take me longer, it might take me less. Well, and then holding space for that, like holding space for just the unpredictability in and, in and of itself feels exhausting, right? I don't know. Just living with, I don't know. Yeah. I'd love to transition into sort of the intersection of chronic pain and kink. This maybe this is just a, a terribly reductive slash dumb question. <laughs> and please tell us yeah. if it is. And, and, and please, yes, I've been told far worse. How does someone with chronic pain sort of decide? I don't know. That's not the right word. Sort of enter the world of kink and think, oh, this is this is something that that can help me. I mean, is it is it 
is it a, a therapeutic idea? Is it something that's discovered, you know, in a much more personal basis? Like how, how, how do the, how do the worlds intersect like that? I mean, a kink is, is a very, is a very broad thing. Um, so in this case, I'm assuming you're talking about people um, receiving pain. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing, right? Because kink versus BDSM, and I feel like you know any clarity you can offer, because yes, like kink is so much different than uh, someone in chronic pain or with disability then wanting to seek out more, more pain, good pain, yeah. to go back to yeah. our title. But yes, I know kink is much more broad. Yeah. So it's broader, but it's also a bit more informal. Mm-hmm. Um, to kind of a quick and dirty version, um, BDSM is an acronym that stands for bondage and discipline, domination, submission, sadism, and masochism. Um, and I always have to go and write that down and remember what it says because <laughs> I just can never remember it. <laughs> yeah. um, so they're very particular behaviours, um, very particular interactions. Um, and it's quite heavily pathologized. It's 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 really only in the last twenty years that BDSM has been removed from the uh, diagnostics diagnostic uh, the DSM. Can't remember what the acro- that acronym stands for. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's no longer considered a mental illness. Oh God. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so people are not necessarily comfortable saying I'm into BDSM because mm-hmm. that's that's the bad thing. Right. Whereas kink feels a bit broader. Um, it can include all of those things, but it can also include other things as well. Uh, particularly, there's a lot of space for fetish, consensual power exchange, group sex, anything that can be broadly understood as non-normative sex. Um, yep. And yeah, they're not two separate communities. BDSM and kink overlap. They're the same thing mm-hmm. in a lot of cases. It's just the label that we're giving them. Great. And um, this is... I use kink because it's yes. more friendly, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In terms of like, is kink going to help with your pain? That kind of question. No idea. Mm. It might, but it might help in a way that you don't enjoy. So don't do it. Uh, it might help in a way that you do enjoy, in which case carry on. You might enjoy it anyway, even if it doesn't help, in which case you can also carry on. And if it doesn't help and you don't enjoy it, definitely don't keep doing it. (laughs) You know, it's that kind of, and also, yeah, receiving pain, um, spanking, flogging, et cetera, et cetera, is quite a small aspect of kink. You might find that it, you know, you might, actually be really into restraint and bondage and that's got nothing to do with chronic pain mm-hmm. um nothing to do with receiving pain actually you might be really enjoy being a dominant and that's mm-hmm. got nothing to do with it either mm-hmm. you know, it's it's about it the, they're two intersecting parts of one's identity and some people find that it's something that they enjoy and some people don't go any near it. So if I look at my participants, um, yeah. which is a relatively small group of people, because as I have, I've explained um, to a lot of people, because um, it's always that first thing of how common is it? Hmm. Um, um, I have no idea. No one knows. 
it's just it is we don't know how common bdsm is we don't know how common kink is we can take a run and guess at this stuff but the same goes with chronic pain we don't mm. know how many people have chronic pain but i like to take the the more generous one to understandings which is about 20 percent population of, of in um the global north have chronic pain about 20 percent five to 20 percent of population in the global north get involved in some sort of kink that's one in five for both there's a pretty high chance yeah that sometimes there's going to be some overlap there between those two groups that's as close as i can say is like whether or not it's reasonable and also i'm the sort of person who still counts on their fingers so <laughs> like giving me accurate statistics i have no idea what to do with them yes um i'm like sweet do i i can make a hat kind of <laughs> <laughs> Some of my participants were into kink before they became pained. Some of them got into kink afterwards. Some of them deliberately engaged with pain within kink. Some of them, it was a kind of interesting side effect mm. that they were willing to talk about, but it wasn't actually what they were get, what they were interested in, in their kink practices for. Like, for example, you could think of somebody who, um, really enjoyed um being dominated um, and it just so happened that the person that they played with really enjoyed spanking um as an act of domination yeah. so pain came into it but it's not what they were actually there for yeah they were there for the domination and then the person they played with yeah was into was into in for the spanking cool in which case if it works for everybody it's a great thing to carry on with. Did but did these participants in, in your research did participating in kink practices shape start to reshape their sexual identity at all or 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 shift how they sort of felt as sexual beings, I guess? Um yes. Short and sweet answer, yes. Um, <laughs> so again in, in kind of very different ways. For some of them what I was seeing was what they were talking about was a kind of kink spaces made space for them to be who they were, um, including their chronic pain. Um, for some of them, it was an engagement with their bodies. So kink was asking them to think about what they wanted um, and what they were feeling. Um, and sometimes giving them permission permission almost mm -hmm. to um you know using heavy uh scare quotes there to kind of <laughs> permission isn't quite the right word but it kind of works as well um permission to feel that pain um permission mm -hmm. to express it but also permission to express their needs about pain as well to go actually we can't do that because it hurts too much or this hurts like hell and i want to do it anyway mm. which is not you know people who aren't into kink might look at it and go why would you want to do that that hurts or that looks really uncomfortable or how is that sexy um and if it's you're not into it of course that might be how you're going to think yeah. um and for somebody who's in chronic pain yes please more pain sounds really counterintuitive and 
a space in which having that conversation with yourself and sometimes with other people involved is possible because it's thinking about well, what do you like and just because someone else doesn't like it doesn't mean that you have to not like it too yeah. and yeah you're into this thing and other people are going why but that doesn't mean that it's a bad thing they're just going well, why do you like it what what's it giving for you or even I don't care why you like it you like it so let's just keep going it's yeah. that space to 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 be yourself um yeah. And to think about what you want and don't want um, and how your body feels that can be very, very um, valuable. Going back to what I said earlier but about, you know, pain makes people very uncomfortable. Actually being in a space where you can be in pain is quite freeing. And yes, some a couple of my participants, there was a kind of almost therapeutic effect of like, Guessing flogged felt good because of that kind of endorphin rush. Yeah, that's um, And yes, that can sometimes be, and that for some of them, that was kind of why they engaged in it. But they also liked flogging for other reasons too. Right. There were there were other things going on. It wasn't just about feeling better, uh, yes. reducing their pain. <laughs> reducing the pain was kind of a handy side effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, maybe they would have been less enthusiastic about it if it had just made their pain worse or hadn't made a difference at all. But yeah, they were getting other things out of it mm-hmm. that wasn't about their pain, but the pain was a kind of, yeah, a handy side effect. Yeah. Right. You know, I, I, I as I'm listening to this, I, I, I mean, I've just had, 10,000 things going on in my mind, but it's, it, I'm starting to think about, is there a, I, maybe this is too heavy of a phrase, I don't know, a power dynamic between able-bodied and those with a disability. I, I'm, here's the reason I'm thinking about it is because um, I, I'm someone who enjoys pornographic videos i enjoy that and um there's a there's a particular uh man that i once saw uh and he uh he had uh multiple sclerosis and he really enjoyed getting off on video and having people watch he really dug it um very handsome gentleman if you and god you know they always tell you never never read the comments my god on any video never go to which the comments which you did which I, I immediately go to um it's sort of the comments sort of fell into two categories one was condescending you're so brave oh <laughs> i can't believe you do this and i you know the world is a better place and then the other bordered on fetish um and in, and it's fetishizing kind of his disability, fetishizing his disability okay. in particular, and it, 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 in a pretty you know as ugly as you would you would probably imagine that would be on yeah. a, on, okay. a, on a video you know board, um, and uh, uh, th- that is that is my comment, and I would love to hear your idea about that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, there is a power dynamic. Mm-hmm. Whenever you get two people in a room, there's going to be some sort of power dynamic. Um, the, the, you know, 
so my understanding of power, the way I think about it is, is thinking in terms of, um, axes of social identity. Um, so there might be a power dynamic between two different people, two different gender, genders, a power dynamic of people, two different ages. If a person is disabled, a person is non-disabled, there's a power dynamic there. There's also a power dynamic between different people with different disabilities. Ah. Um, and I can dig into that if you want to. I'm in super interested yeah. in that. That's yeah. Okay. Yeah. So basically we, we talk within disability studies and disabled communities more broadly quite often talk about an idea called the, well, quite often. It, it's an idea called, um, hierarchy of impairment or hierarchy of disability. And it basically certain disabilities are better than others. Um, for example, Somebody who is a wheelchair user but is otherwise um, capable, um, they don't require a great deal of personal care. They are, you know, they're able to hold down a job that, uh, you know, on a normal schedule, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They're not not disabled, but their disability may have a relatively minimal impact on their day to day life, and they may not necessarily particularly strongly identify with being disabled. Um, Whereas, for example, there's a, you know, a big difference between the kind of the social value um, mm. that we assign to somebody who might have a very complicated disability, requires a lot of personal care um, and personal support. And um, when I say the social value, I do mean in a kind of in a really blunt way. We think that people who can't work because of their disability are not contributing to society mm-hmm. in the same way. Yeah. <laughs> I obviously think that that's complete nonsense. And just because somebody isn't working doesn't mean they're not contributing, that they're not part of society, but that recognition. So Mm -hmm. there's, yeah, there's definite differences between different types of disability um, and different types of impairment and illness um, as to how non-disabled people treat you, but also how other disabled people treat you. Mm. Um, So yeah, there's, Essentially, what I'm saying is, yes, there's always a power dynamic. It gets in there. Um, <laughs> and I wonder if with this man, Tony, that you were talking about, like, if there's a level of which if he read the comments, I mean, he's taking his own power in that situation as well. Right. So like people perhaps are trying to strip him of his humanity in certain ways or fetishize him. But at the same time, it's tricky. Right. Because he's sort of having the power by being like, I'm putting myself out here and you're all watching me. Yeah. Yeah. So. And he maybe, maybe he enjoys Mm. knowing that people find him attractive or enjoy watching him. And maybe his disability comes into that. Maybe it doesn't for him. Um, But also maybe it's a part of how he feels good about himself. Or maybe, frankly, it's just a way for him to make some money. (laughs) 100% that could be, yeah. Let's, you know, let's be honest. Or all of the people above. make pornography and engage in sex work for all sorts of reasons. And yeah. sometimes it is just cold, hard cash and capitalism. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there is actually some really interesting, um, work by a collective, um, in, based in the UK. It's called Resilient and Resisting that it talks about sex work and disability and disabled sex workers, um, in particular. Um, so we can think about who, um, yeah, the, the power dynamic. And yes, there are people who have a fetish for disability. 
Um, and there is a deliberate power dynamic within that. Um, in the, but I would say, you know, there's also people who have fetishes for people wearing high heels or yeah. men with long beards or whatever. I, I tend to, to take a fairly, um, broad view of these things of there's objectification and there's finding someone sexy mm. and there is an overlap. Um, and it's kind of okay to almost object. I want to say kind of okay to objectify, but, and the but is a huge one, as long as you don't forget that they're a person too. Yeah. That finding someone attractive and liking to look at them, as long as that doesn't include their humanity, mm. um, as long as they, 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 they remain a person, they, they continue to be there. Unless their thing is being literally objectified and treated like an object, in which case <laughs> yes. that's a thing to discuss for you amongst yourselves and carry on if that's, that's a thing. Um, but yeah, remembering that they are still a person too. Um, so, I know disabled people who have enjoyed um, working, um, working with dating, having relationships, whether purely about sex or otherwise, with devotees, with disability fetishists and people who find that very, very off putting. And it's really, again, it's it's a highly individual thing. It's a and preference. Yes, yeah, it's a preference. And, you know, sometimes they can be really great and respectful relationships and they can be very loving and great emotional relationships. And sometimes they're not. And disability isn't going to make it or break it in that sense. It's, it's being disabled and being with a disability fetishist doesn't mean that you're doing it bad or right. doing it good. There's so much else that you've got to think about. Yeah. Hearing that, that's absolutely Fascinating. And as, as you were speaking, I was thinking, you know, because my reaction to reading those comments was, how dare you? But at the same time, am I, am I then just participating in the condescension that I was judging? I mean, I, I was thinking about that too, just yeah. like what we do in our heads that it's like, you can't do that. I mean, it's in, in it's, it's othering in itself, right? You yeah. can't do yeah. that. That person's in a wheelchair. You can't do that. That person has X disability and that's the instinct, but that's not necessarily they don't need necessarily our protection. Yeah. And it's, I don't know. It's, it's, there's no straightforward answer. I don't think, I think there's no, um, there's no right way to do it. Mm -hmm. There are definitely wrong ways. I would say, um, <laughs> there's the, no, don't do that. Don't do that. And I would say the kind of expressions of pity are those, mm -hmm. um, the oh, you're so brave. Yeah. Oh God, really? But also, you know, th those are the the times when I'm like, that's that's not what he's going for. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there there are, and it's, and particularly when it comes to to porn, I would say there is a there is a distinct difference because it's that thing of. of once it's out there, it, it, it's a finish. It's it's not an interaction in quite the same way. And uh, obviously yes. OnlyFans and other things have changed some of that. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a kind of, 
a completed act before it's handed over to the viewer. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not an interactive act in quite the same way. Yeah. Um, and obviously there are lots and lots of boundaries, um, and blurred lines in there. Um, so it, there is a certain, there are limitations to how disabled people making porn can expect to be treated. Um, in the sense of, of they, they're, they're almost certainly knowing that they're going to get some of those negative responses. They may get some of that fetishization and they've almost certainly thought about it first. Yeah. Like, so there's an agency in going, I still want to do it or I still need to do it mm-hmm. or a bit of both. Um, and I think, yeah, I think kind of saying that they shouldn't do it or that it's, um, it's automatically bad because they're disabled is, is a, is a problem. There is no straightforward answer, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I mean, I, I like that as an answer. It's like, there's, mm-hmm. it's actually about asking more questions and not trying to put things in boxes. Yeah. Not assuming that it's, it's bad because it's sex work done by a disabled person. Exactly. Right. Yes. And there's the there <laughs> response. There it is. Yeah. There we go. Uh, Eventually yeah. I will find a point. <laughs> I think, uh, shall we? Uh, yes. Take and then we're going to take you into the dungeon. Take you into the dungeon. Don't, I promise, don't yeah. be afraid. Oh, yeah. These are, these are, yeah. It's only, you know, we like to probe the depths of the human psyche uh, by asking uh, all of our guests the same five questions. You know, soul stroking questions. Soul stroking. Yeah, that really, that really. You know, we 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 like we like to shatter the self and then we yes. build the pieces. Um, our our first question for Emma is: cats or dogs? Both. Ah. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, as a bisexual woman, I cannot make a choice. Like, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> um, I have both. That's incredible. That's the first answer of that kind. Yes. So I love it. Um. I have a cat. He's literally sleeping on the chair next to me. Uh, So he'd be very upset if I said dogs. Um, And I do also have a dog. So I can't pick Great. Also reptiles. I have, yeah, those are good measure too. So. Oh. Do you have have a reptile? Yeah, I have a bearded dragon and a tortoise. Oh. I I have a bearded dragon. It's a good pet. Yeah, uh-huh. he's he's great. He does absolutely nothing all day. It's hilarious. Yeah, there you go. I've had friends come around and go, I swear he was in exactly the same position the last time I was there. And I'm like, yeah, he probably was. <laughs> likely. Yeah, very probably likely. Was, yes. He and I have a lot in common, I think. Um, <laughs> what is, what's your favorite ice cream flavor? Mint chocolate chip. Mm. We're getting a lot of mint chocolate That's a good answers. One. Yeah. That's a really good one. Okay. Third question. Would you choose heaven with your enemies or hell with your friends? Oh, hell with my friends every time. Um, I I know for well I'm not going to heaven (laughs) and to be honest you know the people who seem to be convinced that they're going there I don't want to hang out with them yeah oh that's they don't seem talk about condescending and righteous yeah well yeah yeah I'm I'm, yeah I'm fully accepted I'm going to hell in a handcart and (laughs) I'm I'm done with it I can I can take that yeah you'll survive yeah okay what is something that really scared you before you did it but you're glad you did oh god um Mm. actually yeah learning learning to teach mm-hmm. absolutely terrifying i still get terrified before i go and do presentations um and like public speaking now um and for some yeah i stand up in front of people and talk to them for a living 
Mm. Um, still absolutely terrifying every time, but I'm still really glad I do it because I genuinely really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, wasn't something I expected to enjoy. Um, cause I was the person who would literally have a panic. I, I was the kid who had panic attacks at university when mm-hmm. asked to do presentations. Um, so how the hell I became a lecturer, I do not know, <laughs> but I am very glad that I took the time to practice doing it. And I was very lucky in terms of having supportive lecturers who made space for me to have a panic attack and then help me do, and carry do the on. presentation yeah. and carry on afterwards. Yeah. I was going to say, it's, it's clearly, yeah, it's clearly working out and paying off. Yeah. As as your lovely blue office there attests, I I say, yes, it's worth it. Um, and then finally, uh, what is the best compliment you've ever received? Oh, again, another difficult one. Um, I'm going to go with the thing my grandfather used to say to me: "The trouble with you is, is you're too independent." Mm. Um, he meant it, he always meant it as a compliment. He said it like it was an insult, but you knew it wasn't. <laughs> um, and it was basically, yeah, the fact that you could stand on your own two feet was. And that you were an opinionated little mm-hmm. <laughs> toad. Um, I think it's the uh, more delightful term my grandmother once used. But yes, that was always the best compliment was knowing that you were capable of doing stuff, even if it wasn't necessarily stuff that people wanted you to be capable of doing. <laughs> Amen. Wonderful. Oh, Emma, thank you. Dr. Emma thank Shepherd, you. folks. A pleasure. Yeah. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. Our, our first PhD? Our first PhD. First PhD. You ever think about getting a PhD? No. No? <laughs> if you did, what would you... I'm going to ignore that no. If you ever yes, got a PhD. That's not true. Of course, I would want it in like... Can you get a PhD? I've always wanted to be an art history major. Can I get a PhD in some weird, obscure, historic art history? Yeah. That's what I'd want. What would it like PhD in pre-Raphaelite? Oh. Pre-Raphaelite... Acts of dissemination against the man. <laughs> oh, oh my! That's quite a dissertation. Um, no, I don't know. It'd be with hieroglyphics, maybe. Hieroglyphics. <laughs> a PhD in bird eye sun <laughs> triangle basket. What about uh, you? I, I, I would get a PhD in uh, uh, thermodynamics. That's not true. Actually, I, I would get if uh, if I didn't study if I if I if I weren't so economically smart by studying theater, um, right. I would have uh, uh, studied music. But then, if I didn't study music, I probably would have gone into astrophysics. Okay, so that is legit. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I'm fascinated by. It. And speaking of fascinating, yeah, she what we just heard. I feel like she. she gave us a lot to think about. I really hope that people who listen to this have the same experience of just ex- expanding the way they consider pain and disability. Yeah. Well, and then and then and tying and tying it all back to sexuality mm-hmm. and and kink and 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 all of that. It it's really uh, eye-opening, and I, 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 I really had my eyes open about my response to uh, the the guy with multiple sclerosis on on the video of how you know my reaction really was how guys seriously how dare you say yeah. these things as as if you know as if this man needs my protection. You know what it reminds me of? God, I'm just I'm just getting deep in the waters here, mm-hmm. like the white savior complex. It kind of is. You know what I mean? And yeah. it's like, well, I'm gonna. S- 
this makes me feel really good that I'm going to be just like righteous and yes. outraged for you. And and don't get me wrong, I had the same reaction. Yeah. So I share in that. <laughs> yes, because so, someone someone lesser than me needs my assistance. Right. As if we just assume they need our help. Yes. And it's 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 you know and I, I, you know I, I don't want to say the the impulse is completely wrong, but it's also. No possibly unwelcome and i think we need to and just food for thought i think that's the thing right i loved it it's just like think about that yeah i also want to say tony our Mm -hmm. investigations are not done in terms of kink and autism and sexuality Mm -hmm. she she brought that up and that's something i just really want to continue to explore oh for sure our first international guest that's right our first although did we interview a canadian god damn it but all you get on this, all we do on this podcast is lie. <laughs> it's a house of lies. Oh well. Um, but anyways, uh, by the way, I'm sure everybody just loved that I screamed the word lies. I looked, I looked at my microphone and it went into like the red. So, <laughs> so listening audience, you're welcome. You're welcome for the this ASMR of rage. Here's what I want to say. I hope, in spite of obviously even current obstacles with transphobia and everything else. <laughs> that she touched on going on in our world that is so destructive. I hope that this research continues to flourish because I, I think a lot of just holding space, holding space and doing nothing. And maybe that is super reductive based on everything else she said, but just the idea of doing nothing and how long one minute can be when you're looking on your phone versus standing in a field and Mm -hmm. forcing yourself to do nothing between that and just holding space for people. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Those are two Large things to work on. Yeah. And valuable. Yeah. Uh, well, folks, as you know, the last few years have not been so great. Mm-mm. But remember that not all pain is bad. Sometimes it's good. I'm Tony. And I'm Kiara. And you've been listening to, to Good, good pain. pain. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.